Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we could come this morning, even at this time, to sit and, and to hear your word uh, preached this morning. But God, we know that as we come, that our senses can be dulled with tiredness and our minds can be distracted with the many things that are, that are going on in our lives at this time. Lord, we know that the Satan is seeking to snatch up all the seed of your word that's being preached. Lord, you know that the preacher can be tired. You know he can be, he's a fallible human being. And there's all these things, God, that, that have come into play. But Lord, you are the almighty God. And your word is true. Your word is powerful. Your word is sufficient. And we pray this morning that you would speak that word to us in a way that we could receive it by faith. And God, that you would use it to draw us ever closer to you. To know you. To love you. To fight and battle with sin. Lord, to glory and rejoice in who you have made us. We thank you, Lord. And pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, no wonder Solomon says in verse 8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so really we find ourselves sort of ending up where we started off. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 2, you see that Solomon opens with the very same thing, that life is futile. It's, it literally means it's a breath. It's a, it's a vapor. If you think about uh, on a cold day when you want some hot chocolate or some, maybe some tea and you put a kettle on the stove and the, the vapor comes out, the steam comes out. That's what life is like, Solomon says. Or maybe you get up in the morning, one morning, and, and you look out and there's sort of a mist out over the ground until the sun comes up and sort of burns it off. And he says, you know, if you really think about it, that's what life is like. But it sure doesn't seem like that, does it, when we're, we're living life? You know, it seems like it's, it's, it's more permanent to us. We don't really think about those times when we will leave this earth. And we think oftentimes that this is just sort of going to go on forever, especially if you're young. But we get so caught up, I think, in the, the details of life, our to-do list, the, the schedules that we have, all the things that we think are so important. And, and actually, we can be sort of driven by these things, almost like a donkey where there's a, a stick and a string with a carrot on the end sort of leading that donkey. We can sort of be like that in one sense. And so our days turn into weeks and our weeks turn into months and our months turn into years. And then before we know it, we're old and we're wondering what happened to the time. And I think about those who live life apart from God and, and how impossible it has to be to really grasp and to make sense of all this that we call life. You know, and no wonder that people seem to think that things are so random. You know, I mean, what, what's life all about? Why do things happen the way that they do? It does seem meaningless in one sense. And so no wonder the preacher says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But, you know, praise God, that's not the end of the story. You know, it's not the end of Ecclesiastes, nor is it the end of the Christian life. To say that things are vanity, as there is a conclusion to the matter in verses 9 through 14. 
Now, there are, I don't want to get over technical or anything, but there are some who think that the end of Ecclesiastes was written by someone other than Solomon. And, and the reason they say that is because it says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. In other words, he's talking about the preacher in the third person. So there are some who would say it makes sense that this was written by someone else. And th there are even some who think that this ending was tacked on to the book of Ecclesiastes because what the preacher said in all the preceding things leading up to the end of 12 verse 8 it was something that needed to be corrected. So it's almost like this writer is coming along and saying, hey, forget everything the preacher has said and remember the heart of the Torah. Fear God and obey his law. Now, uh, it could be that there was someone else who wrote the end of Ecclesiastes. I'm not totally convinced of that. Um, just because Solomon's referred to in the third person doesn't necessarily mean it, it had to be somebody else that wrote this. Um, look, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 20. Um, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17 Jesus is, is going up to Jerusalem and it says that he took his disciples and when they were on their way, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. In verse 18, he says, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Jesus doesn't say, I will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He said, the son of man would. He refers to himself in the third person. So this is something that it doesn't necessarily mean it's an ironclad case that there's another editor to the book of Ecclesiastes. But, but regardless, I don't know that that's so much the matter as much as it is that there seems to be no thematic disconnection between the final verses and the rest of the book. As a matter of fact, as you, as you look at this conclusion to the book of Solomon, or to, of Ecclesiastes, it seems like it very much affirms what Solomon says. As a matter of fact, look at verses 9 and 10, and we read that what Solomon wrote was true. And, and not only true, but Solomon arranged what he had learned with great care, and he communicated it in such a way that was clear, a way that was interesting, and in a way that spoke to his hearers that might uh, lead them to, to follow what God's Word says, which is a great reminder for any of us that teach God's Word, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a Bible study teacher, maybe you're a parent teaching your children, uh, that we must, first of all, be like Solomon and, and, and meditate on God's Word. Allow that Word to, to work on us as we seek to understand it and skillfully arrange it in our minds so that we might clearly Share that word with God's people, persuading our hearers to willingly follow what God's word says. And so what Solomon shows us is our needs of words of, of wisdom. If we're to understand what the purpose of life is and, and to understand what life is all about. And so in one sense, as we read verses 9 and 10, it refers specifically to what we read in Ecclesiastes. But at the same time, it's really telling us something more important about how we should view all of Scripture, the entirety of the Bible. And so I want, I want us as our first point to look at these words of wisdom and see what the writer has to say about that. And then second of all, I want us to look at our response to these words of wisdom. So first, 
words of wisdom. The genuine words of wisdom are sufficient for how to live life here on this earth. I mean, God's word uh, is it both stings and it stabilizes, as one person put it. I thought that was a good way of saying it. It both stings and it stabilizes. Uh, uh, look at verses. Uh, look at verse eleven. It says, "The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings." So we read first of all that these wise words that the preacher preaches are like goads. Now I don't know about you, but I don't use that word goads too often. But a goad was really uh, an object that a shepherd would use. It's like a sharp stick that he used to sort of prod a stubborn animal to move along and, and to make sure that they move in the right direction. And of course, it, it didn't necessarily injure the animal, but it inflicted enough pain that it got that animal's full cooperation to go in the direction that they needed to. And, and Solomon likens his words of wisdom, and not only his words, but other words of wisdom, to be like a goad that... They spur on our conscience, make us uncomfortable enough maybe to turn away from, from sin. That the words of God stimulate our soul, steering us back to the right spiritual path. There may be times when you come uh, and you have wrestled in, in your week and maybe you have drawn very far away from God. Maybe you've given in to temptation and as God's word is read... On Sunday mornings, as God's word is preached, the Holy Spirit uses those words to, to prod you on to the right path. And so, uh, if you could, think of Ecclesiastes and even God's words of wisdom and his word as a sort of a, a cattle prod uh, to sort of move us along. Uh, and the preacher's words push us not to expect lasting satisfaction uh, in things like money. As we read Ecclesiastes, we realize that money can't be where we place our hope or, or pleasure or, or our work or, or our power or anything else. But it's only in the goodness of God that we can find true satisfaction. And so these words spur us on to patience. They spur us on to contentment, to humility, and even joy in the Lord. And even when we forget about God, the the, the preacher's words prod us to remember our Creator, as we talked about last week. And the moment that we think that, you know what, I'm going to live forever, you know, then the, he pokes us with the goad of, of wisdom to remind us that, no, one day our life will come to an end. So the way that we do our work, the things that we watch on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whatever we watch, those things matter as well. But... But the words of wisdom are not just a goad, but he also describes them as a nail. Now, there are some commentators who think that these, this illus these illustrations are one and the same, that, that the shepherds would put nails in the end of their sticks to, to prompt these animals. And that might be what he's talking about. But the Bible may simply mean that once a wise saying is driven into the mind, it stays there like a nail that's pounded deep into a block of wood. Now, if you've, if you've worked with wood at all and you've nailed nails in and then you realize, oh shoot, I shouldn't have nailed that right there and you try to get that nail out, it's sort of hard to, to get out. And, and life for us may be a vapor. It may be something that's, that's very fleeting and our life may be here and there and everywhere and yet 
God's word, his words of wisdom are like nails that sort of pin us down. They give us a place to hang our experiences. And, and you just think about the effect that God's word has upon his people. And, and all you have to do is go back to the book of Psalms to, to see that, especially Psalm 119. We read, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is that word that guides us and leads us and directs us from, from the path that might be strayed. Or, or Psalm 119.9 where it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And so we see God's word that it both stings us at times and prods us and stabilizes us at the same time. Now, let's look more closely at this. And, and as we look at verse 12, he says at the end that these words of the wise are what? They're given by one shepherd. Now, if you have the ESV, you may have different translations, but if you have the ESV, you notice that that word shepherd is capitalized because it's, it's, a, it's a reference to God. Um, if you look at, uh, uh, oh, uh, you can look at a number of scriptures that, that talk about God is the shepherd of, of his people. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 11, we read that. Ezekiel 34, 23. Uh, Psalm 23 is one that oftentimes comes to mind when we think of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But even this morning, as we looked at John chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus said that there is only one shepherd, which is, which is himself. So Solomon's words are, are, are not the mere musings of a, of a skeptical man or a, a philosopher. They are part of the inspired, infallible, inerrant revelation of Almighty God. And so for us to read Ecclesiastes is to hear the shepherd's voice. It is to hear the word of God. So we should be very careful to listen to him and to build our lives on the word of God and not on anything else. Um, it's no wonder we read in verse 12. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, as best I could tell from my research today, there are more than a million new books published every year. Think about that. A million new books. I have to get more book space. That's all I can say, okay? There's a million new books printed every year, okay? And in the studying, even if you took a fraction of those books and sought to study them, you would know that there is much weariness. And if you don't believe me, then ask anybody in here who's a student, right? Don't you get tired and weary of all the study that you have to do, the reading, the exam, studying for tests and stuff? But, but Solomon really is, is trying to get across an even more pointed thing than this. He says, my son, be aware of anything beyond these. He, he wants us to see that there's no end to human wisdom, and yet it's extremely limited and wearisome to the soul. That where, where we should give ourselves is to the reading of God's word, to, to understand that these are not just words like any other book, but they stand in a category all their own, that these are the words of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never read any other books. There is a place in Christian discipleship for the life of the mind, but we should always remember that human wisdom and man-made philosophy 
are extremely limited. Even when we read Christian books, they can help us in terms of understanding the scripture. They can challenge us in terms of understanding how to apply God's word. But we must know God's word and not just give ourselves uh, to uh, Christian reading and stuff. And so we must be careful of trying to go farther than the word of God. God's word is revelation is sufficient because it is from God. It is divine words. And we need to get that because today in the church, it does not seem that this is sufficient. And so we see that in various ways to where churches, you know, will find ourselves, you know, where we only study other things other than the Bible or maybe in the counseling in the church. We seek to implore uh, different methodology and we're really trusting in that methodology to help people in their problems rather than taking them back to God's word. Here again, like I said, these things can be beneficial, but we must be careful that we're not looking to things other than God's word as the final authority in our, in our lives. And I, I just think about that, how often I hear people talk about organized religion and how disillusioned they are by it. I mean, I hear a lot of young people who talk about friends that they have who say, yeah, well, they don't go to church anymore. They're disillusioned by organized religion. And I think, okay, well, I can understand that. Organized religion's not always good. But there's a difference between organized religion and what God has shared for us in his word, and particularly the gospel. Um, I, I think it's... Uh, it's uh, very helpful. I, I read some wise words from a young pastor who says, those who have walked away from the church and from God almost always begin their path by exalting other knowledge to be equal with God's word. If not placing those things above what God reveals in his word. In other words, they don't take God's word for what it is and seek to submit themselves to what the Lord has revealed to us. But they look for, for meaning and truth and other things. And they, they don't have this submissive heart that they give to the Lord. And, and then they say, yeah, see, it doesn't work. Almost like it's a formula. Now, I want to be careful not to be too simplistic because leaving the church can be a very complex issue. And there can be a lot of things at play here. But often it happens because someone is seeking for truth, but not willing to receive God's word for what it is. The words of an almighty creator. And, and in this search to move beyond God and what he reveals to us. We could be sort of like the man who's looking for a pencil. And so he's walking all over the room looking for his pencil and he can't find it. And then he walks up to someone and another person says, uh, dude, it's behind your ear. And you go, oh, yeah, there it is. OK, I wonder what I did with that pencil. And then they look at you and they say, you know, sometimes the things that we go searching for are with us all along. And sometimes that's true for those that have spurred. God's word and have gone off to seek truth in other ways in other areas but they have the truth with them especially if they've grown up in the church and they've heard God's word preached I appreciate what Zach Eswine says sort of commenting on chapter 12 verse 12 he says you know he says you'll be tempted to think that you must move beyond the wisdom words of God in order to make a difference and find your purpose 
He says his words will at times, that is God's words, will at times seem too small and quite a thing amid the clamor and importance of the world. You will be tempted to think that you need something more than your relationship with God in order to prove worthy and credible under the sun. He said, but I tell you, after everything is said and done, the end of the matter, the grand purpose for which we live, the whole duty of your life is this. Trust God, follow what he says, and this right where you are. And that leads us to, to Solomon's uh, comments about what our response ought to be in verses 13 and 14. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, this isn't the first time that Solomon has said, fear the living God. To, but but it, it is something that we need to take to heart. Now, we live in a society that's very sensitive to abuse and and and. Uh, one person having power over another. So we hear things like fear and we think, ooh, you know, that's a, that's a terrible picture of who God is. You know, like someone who's out to, you know, destroy us. But to fear God is to honor him. It is to revere God. It is, it is to worship him. I like how one preacher put it. He said the fear of the God in the Old Testament is really equivalent of faith in God in the New Testament. It is a sense of submitting to the Lord. It is a sense of, of trusting in Him, of giving up our own will to do His will. It, it is a, a knowledgeable faith of a man who has studied his God and he knows who his God is and he loves Him. And so this fear leads us to keep God's commandment. As he says in verse 13, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, that may not be the best translation. Literally, what this says is, for this is the all of man. This is the all of man, which would include our duty. But I think that oftentimes when we hear the whole duty of man, we think, okay, God, what is it I'm supposed to do? But the idea is that this is what makes man whole. This is what fulfills us. To fear God and to obey His commands. It, you know, it, it, it doesn't look like it from our fallen perspective, but submitting our will to His and trusting God is what God made us for. It is that sense of, of trusting in Him. And the greatest thing in life is to live life before the one true God in faith and in obedience. You know, God is not a cruel God. God is a very gracious God. As a matter of fact, the one thing that we can know about God is, is that everything he does is good. We may not understand it. It may test us to the, the nth of our abilities and maybe even beyond that. But the one thing that we can hold on to is to know that God is good. Now, whether we're ready to come before God now or, or maybe we're someone who hopes to avoid God, the truth is, is that one day we will all stand before God in judgment. Uh, D.R. Davis says, Life down here is only a prelude to a greater life in the hereafter. 
And one day we will stand before God and all of our sins will be exposed. Every deed that we have, whether good or evil, including even every casual thought and every careless word. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 is sort of a a humbling verse. It says that, that God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So not only those things that we have sought to hide that we don't want anybody else to know, and it would terrify us if people at Kirk of the Plains found out about these things, but even the purposes and the motivations of our hearts. Things that I think oftentimes we're not even aware of, even those things will be disclosed. Now, why does Ecclesiastes tell us about this final judgment here? Because it means that everything matters. You know, the preacher began and ended uh, his quest by saying that everything is vanity and that without God there is no purpose in life. And if there is no God and there is no final judgment, then it's, it's hard to see how anything really matters. And you can understand, brothers and sisters, just think about your unbelieving friends and family members and neighbors. You watch them do things in their life and you're thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing cheating on your spouse? What are you doing dipping into the funds of, of the company? Or what, what are you doing? But if there is no God in your minds and if there is no judgment, then we have to somehow get something out of this life. We have to find some purpose and some meaning. And so you see people do all kinds of things. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. This is not all there is to life, what we live here upon this earth. This is, there is a God in heaven who rules the world. There is a life to come after this. And one day the dead will rise and every person, whoever will lives, will stand before God in judgment. And when that day comes, it will be revealed that everything that everyone ever did will be exposed at the final judgment. So at that final judgment, it will matter how we used our time whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money, whether we spent it on ourselves or invested it in the eternal kingdom. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what we allowed ourselves to view, even when we were entertaining ourselves and sort of chilling out in the evening, or what our hands touched or what our mouths spoke. Every word that we said, whether we obeyed our father and our mother or even that look that we gave as we walked away from our parents when they told us to do something, or the comment we muttered under our breath, all those things matter. What we said about somebody else and their performance will matter. The sarcastic comments that we made about others, the homework assignment that we fulfilled, the cup of water, the tear of compassion, the word of testimony, all those things matter. You see, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, that everything is vanity, but instead that everything matters. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it, it all has eternal significance. And what matters most of all is that what is our attitude towards God and about the Lord Jesus Christ it's interesting that Ecclesiastes doesn't end with a, a promise of grace, but a warning of judgment. But, but nonetheless, even in that warning of judgment, 
It's God's grace. If it's true that God will bring everything to judgment, then it will then it is desperately important for us to make sure that we will be found righteous on that awesome and momentous day. And the only way that we can do that is to trust our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has power to save us from the wrath of God, as we've been talking about in Sunday school. And it's into this vain world that our Savior came. And like us, He suffered all its futility and all of its frustration. But Jesus did more than that. When the time was right, He took God's judgment upon Himself for our sins. And His body returned to the dust. But, un, but he, did, he didn't stay there. On the third day, He rose again from the dead to bring life from the grave. And soon, Jesus will come again. And on that day, when according to the gospel, God judges the secret sins of men by Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance uh, to all by raising him from the dead. And when that day comes, everyone who believes in Jesus will stand before the righteous judge and look into the eyes of a loving Savior. Trust Jesus, whose victory saves us from a life of vanity. But that's not a promise, brothers and sisters, just for the future. That is a promise for us now. That we are not just bound by this world. That even now, that we can live our lives aware of who God is, more than aware of who He is. We can live our lives fearing God, trusting God, placing our faith in Him, where, where God's not an add-on to the things that we do in our schedule or our lives, or that God's only associated with church, but instead that our purpose, our chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and meditate on His Word this morning. We thank you for the ways that that you watch over and you care for us. God, we thank you that you have given us your word as a goad and as a nail to, to nail our hearts down. Because, God, we're so fickle. And we go here and there and everywhere. But, Lord, you are so faithful. And I pray that, that you would cause us to, to live our life ever aware of not just aware of eternity, but Lord, aware of your presence each and every day. And may you stir our hearts, God. May you fix our hearts, Lord, firmly upon you. Let us not just think about how things will affect us or the things that we want. But Lord, I pray that really our focus would be get to the point where we're really concerned about you. And that really what we desire is to please you and to honor you. So please, so work in us to continue to grow in our faith and, and to trust you. Uh, Lord, if we have been negligent to um, not give ourselves to be in your word, we pray that you would cause us to return. Uh, Lord, to, to draw strength from you, and Lord, for you to use your word in our lives. We thank you, God, and we pray these things in your name.
Amen.